Vitamin C is very, very, very powerful um, uh, oxidative stress or antioxidants. So the, these people that are dying of the coronavirus are dying from two things, inflammation and oxidative stress. So if you can tame the immune system, take care of those things, however you do it, then you stand a good chance of doing better with, the, with any disease. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Indianapolis is Dr. Scott Antoine. Hi, Scott. Hi. How are you, Nathan? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you for taking time out this evening uh, for you and what's for the morning for me. Uh, I wanted to chat more about COVID-19 as obviously um, dominating the news and and thoughts in functional medicine and I thought I heard you on another podcast and I thought you'd be an ideal guest to, to come on to ours so thank you so before we jump in just a bit of a background what really jumped out at me was this unique combination you have you've worked for something like 27 years in ER mm-hmm. and then uh, more recently or the last decade or so with functional medicine now these sort of seem like poles apart for me with ERs about you know vital signs and acute care and really, I suppose, binary decision-making where functional medicine, um, or say in um, emergency medicine, you might treat someone who's cut their finger off with a buzzsaw on the weekend, whereas functional medicine, you're treating somebody, say, with diabetes that's been going for 20 years and you may or may not know what the the causes are. So how did you merge these two worlds? So it's an interesting question. So uh, my wife, Ellen, and I were both uh, physicians, both trained in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, and train in a really academic, strictly academic program, Albert Einstein Medical Center. And it was really the pinnacle of uh, emergency medicine, one of the best programs in the country. And so we were always taught to be really academic, to think about things, to be thoughtful, to formulate a differential diagnosis. In other words, all chest pain is not the same thing. It could be pretty much anything. And so really enjoyed the practice of emergency medicine, especially the folks that came in super sick and where you feel like you really made a difference, especially if you're in a small ER by yourself. And I will say medicine, American medicine in general, uh, and probably I imagine this is, is so in Australia as well, but um, we do great uh, with acute care. Um, and I say over across the disciplines in terms of surgery, if you go in with an appendicitis, uh, gallbladder or something else, or trauma, uh, trauma from a motor vehicle collision, Uh, we tend to do very good, heart attacks, strokes, things like that. And and we spend a lot of time researching those things and really try and be on top of our game. But some of the chronic health issues as an outpatient, when people would go to their family doctor or GP, we tend to sometimes have more of an issue. Now, some things respond well to treatment in the outpatient, like hypertension and a lot of times diabetes, people do okay with that. But there are other things, autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, uh, things that aren't typical, multiple sclerosis, that people really struggle with treating and providing real relief to patients. And so uh, remember, uh, you know, my wife had a um, whole other story, but uh, she had stopped working in the ER. I had been diagnosed in 2004 with a malignant brain tumor. Um, oh. It ultimately went away. I, I can't claim credit for that or that we weren't doing any kind of functional medicine. Then it was really a miraculous healing. But Uh, She stopped working in the ER at that point. We had five children under five uh, and then later kind of had her own health issues, was diagnosed with lupus. Our kids had some language learning disabilities and things. And she really, at this point of desperation, looked and found the Institute for Functional Medicine 
and it really resonated. So she opened a small practice and I kind of said, okay, I'm here to support you. And I ended up going to applying functional medicine and clinical practice, AFMCP, and was sitting there one day, you know, with my emergency medicine mind thinking, oh, that's interesting, probiotics, healing the gut. I agreed with all of it. Uh, and there was a guy there, Dr. Kenny Bach from New York, who my daughter ended up seeing later. Um, and he presented the case of an autistic child who he proceeded to help gain speech and function over a period of about six months. And I thought, these are the cases that we look at in medicine and say, you know, your child has autism. There's not a whole lot we can do. Um, and uh, this was a case where I saw this dramatic turnaround in this child's health. And I, I wept. I was sitting in the chair thinking, wow. whatever these guys are doing, I need to do that. And so it is a dichotomy. Uh, I would find when I went back into the ER, I always was able to practice and, and provide patients the best care. Uh, but it was actually interesting because my colleagues eventually would let me see the patients with chronic abdominal pain, <laughs> migraine, mm -hmm. headache, those things that we had such success with in our office. And, you know, those patients didn't always end up coming to our office. I tried not to refer to myself. I just thought that was kind of strange. Um, but, you know, they really... Um, you know, I spoke to them and I said, you know, if you would only change your diet, take a few probiotics. And I wrote instructions to the same. And actually I had one gentleman call my office years later and said, years ago, you saw me in the ER and I had chronic pain and now I'm back to work and I'm married and have a family. And I followed exactly what you told me to do. You know, you think things are falling on deaf ears, but then I started working in the office with my wife and ultimately my daughter became sick. We talked a little bit about before I came on the air and that sort of cemented my drive to you know, make a difference, be different, practice a different type of medicine. Um, and then it, it became difficult at times in the ER because I would look at people that came in with a heart attack and walk in the room and say, oh my gosh, you're inflamed. You know, not, not the typical thing that an ER doc <laughs> might think. And then ultimately last November, after 27 years, I had decided to dedicate full time to our functional medicine practice. So that's how I ended up where I am. Wow. So yeah, you just recently left uh, ER, which may or may not be a, a fortuitous time in these um, circumstances. Or, and why I say that is because today we're here to talk about COVID-19 mm -hmm. uh, and I understand you're still in touch with colleagues. So you've, you've still got your finger on the pulse of what's happening across the US, potentially in the emergency rooms, but also got your, your functional medicine hat on as well, looking what we want to look at is exploring potential preventive measures and treatment right. measures for, for COVID-19. Um, so before we get into some of the potential um, treatments, I want to discuss not so much the answers, but where the uncertainty lies. And I, I sent through a bunch of right. questions and you had some concerns about the first part, which I think we'll explore now is like mm -hmm. the difficulty in getting your head around the stats from like understanding how many patients are asymptomatic versus how many the case fatality rates etc um and this probably lends to why there's so much conjecture and confusion and, and uncertainty out there so what are some of the the struggles with um looking at this ever emerging data right so the issue is in my mind this is the issue and so i'm, I'm still as you said i keep in contact with my colleagues from the er that i worked at here in indianapolis but also Nationwide, we have a very large listserv email group. I can't tell you. It's from the American College of Emergency Physicians. I can't tell you how many thousands of physicians are in this group, but they email routinely every day. And these are the questions they ask and the questions I ask. Um, you know, what does a positive test mean? What does a negative test mean? 
And when you look at testing, what you're looking at is two things, sensitivity and specificity. So sensitivity is your ability to find the disease. In other words, if the test is negative, you don't have it. Then you have specificity, which is your ability to make sure that you actually do have it. So for screening people, you want a really sensitive test who finds everybody and maybe even a few extras that don't have it. And then you confirm it with a specific test. And so the two types of tests that people are talking about now um, are antibody tests and polymerase chain reaction or PCR tests. <clears throat> and what I had said is before we, we met today is even the physicians, the ER physicians that are on the front lines, even the intensive care physicians here in the ER that I've talked to who are managing these patients on the ventilators, none of us really knows what a test means. The first thing that happened in the United States was no one had a test. So we just were seeing these patients come into the ER that had tremendous difficulty breathing and no one really knew what it was. People thought, oh, it's just the flu. And then we, of course, knew what was going on in China and then had to face the facts that that was probably the, what we were seeing was probably the same thing. But, you know, coronavirus, some type of coronavirus has been around for years. Coronavirus, I learned about in my emergency medicine training in the early 90s. And then, of course, SARS-CoV, the first coronavirus that we really got worried about was in 2002 and 2003. And thank goodness the current coronavirus is not as lethal. That had a 10% mortality rate across the board. Um, then there was a coronavirus in the Middle East called Middle East Respiratory Distress Syndrome or Stress Virus. And uh, that one had a mortality of 35%. Fortunately, both of those were not as contagious. So yes, you're right. There's this large group of people that we think are asymptomatic that we're getting these tests on. Weirdly, it's almost cosmically weird. We're seeing patients, uh, my colleagues in New York are reporting patients are coming in for other reasons, car crash, uh, belly pain, and then they will do a chest x-ray and find that they have signs similar to the other coronavirus patients, and they may not yet be symptomatic. So it's very odd, and we believe wow. that some of those asymptomatic patients have the ability to transmit to others. So it's a bit of a testing mess and various tests are coming out. No one is quite sure who to trust. The FDA is saying this one may be good, but we're not sure. That one may be bad, but we're not sure. A host of tests have jumped up on the black market, mostly out of China, um, that people can get for their house. They're between $50 and $100. Now Quest and LabCorp, which are big lab companies in the United yeah. States, have them, and a lot of specialty labs do as well. All right. <laughs> that helps... Um clarify some of the confusion um and one area that there's i think it's more the anxiety about like mm -hmm. they saw with say the spanish flu there was these sort of three waves um you know that the peak is quite low or sorry that the, the curve's quite low here in australia i think it's mm -hmm. a on a slow decline in the u.s um it's going to take some time right this idea of actually developing immunity can we have any sort of guesstimates on if that's going to happen or can we expect and i probably ask this for in australia as we're heading into our winter which is mm -hmm. you know more likely to to get these um these infections mm -hmm. could we see another spike in the future always possible um you know there there are sort of these anecdotal reports and a lot of the initial reports whether it's about hydroxychloroquine or uh, plus or minus azithromycin or some of the antivirals like remdesivir we received a lot of these Reports out of China, a lot of them were published in non-peer-reviewed journals, open access journals, where kind of you send the manuscript in and it goes in the journal. 
Um, so when you looked at them, you, you look and you said, boy, the study design was really bad. Even the French study that was the initial one that added azithromycin to hydroxychloroquine, it wasn't a really good study design. And so like, you're really not sure what to believe. There are some reports that people say people aren't making serum antibodies. And the question is, are you measuring the right antibodies? How do you know you have the right antibody test for a novel virus? Like, how do you find the antibody? And I know kind of conceptually how you do that, but we're all in this weird spot right now. And now some of the functional medicine lab companies are coming up with their own tests and they've been sending us emails like get our test. And I look at that and think, well, what would I do with the answer? Um, you know, to have someone come in my office and have it be positive. I, of course, you know, have talked to people about some things they could do to help immunity. Um, but gosh, you, you just don't really know what to do. So the, the real answer, clear as mud, the real answer is that we don't know about ongoing immunity here in the States where they're now drawing blood from people who had confirmed coronavirus cases and recovered in hopes that they can make a convalescent serum, which would be similar to um, rabies immune globulin or tetanus immune globulin. So if you've never had, for example, a tetanus shot, and you get exposed to a very dirty wound, and they think there's a chance you'll get tetanus, rather than giving you a, a vaccine and waiting for the immunity to come, you need the immunity right away. So they give you an immune globulin. Hurts like the dickens to get the shot. But anyway, uh, they do the same thing if you're bit by an animal or a bat that's seemingly rabid. Uh, you then uh, give the people rabies immune globulin and rabies vaccination, which takes longer to work. So they're thinking of trying to come up with this convalescent serum, which you could then technically give to people while you're waiting to develop a vaccine. Um, so that's the that's the thought. The difficult question as to whether it could spread or whether we'll see another spike, that's, of course, what we're concerned about. And unfortunately, folks here in the United States are kind of getting tired of waiting and the economy is not doing great. Mm -hmm. uh, because everything is closed. And so people are now protesting in the streets. And, and it's that's a bit of a mess because they're standing next to each other, protesting and drinking after each other as a show of solidarity. And I keep thinking, what will become of them? So I worry about yeah. people. Okay, well, let's move on now to um, some emerging thoughts around the, the pathophysiology. Um, so you, you've got some interesting thoughts around... Uh, oxygen saturation and, and lung pathology. Mm -hmm. Can you go into detail there, please? Sure. So the first theory, and I think it might have been on your sheet that people have talked quite a bit about, um, is the idea that, you know, COVID-19 produces this lung problem, but the lung problem actually isn't adult respiratory distress syndrome, which comes with the characteristic findings on a <clears throat> chest x-ray. Typically, your lungs are full of inflammation and pus, for lack of a better word. And then typically those people have difficulty getting oxygen through that liquid into their bloodstream and they, you know, asphyxiate. So, um, you know, you put them on the ventilator when you need to, but there was a critical care resident here in New York. And then also another physician who wrote sort of an opinion piece and said, this isn't ARDS at all. This, the lungs aren't as stiff as you see them in ARDS. It's actually high altitude pulmonary edema. So if you were at altitude, if you climb at all, the higher you get up, the less pressure of oxygen there is in the in the air. Charles Law or Boyle's Law, one of those physics principles. But there's less oxygen tension. So if you were to put a, an oxygen saturation meter, the little clip that goes on your finger, while you're at altitude, your oxygen saturation would be low. Um, 
And we're seeing that in some of these patients. And so people have floated this idea. That was the initial kind of thing that came out. And people shared that virally, at least here on social media in the States. And the long and the short of it is it probably doesn't matter. So the only thing that you would change with hyatid pulmonary edema is you'd use certain water pills or diuretics to treat it, which these patients, when they're that sick, are going into kidney failure and they're getting diuretics anyway. So my thought about this and what I've told people is leave it up to the pulmonary critical care docs. It probably doesn't matter for you and I. Um, This sort of almost conspiracy theory uh, came up where people said, the ventilators are killing people. <clears throat> Whether it's high altitude pulmonary edema or ARDS, the decision to put people on a ventilator is because they look like they're going to die. And so those patients that we know it's a 50% mortality when patients or higher when patients are intubated and put on a ventilator. So you can't kind of look at that and say the ventilator is killing people. It's, mm. It is what it is. Um, so that's part A. And then um, I'll give you a second to ask, or I can talk about the second part about hemoglobin. Yeah, no, I think that that um, makes sense. Probably just to clarify that mm-hmm. the ventilators aren't in effect killing them. It's more like they're they're on death's door anyhow, and it's a last ditch effort. And it's yeah, sort of low low chance. Yeah, right. That's your last because the decision to put someone on a ventilator is if they absolutely cannot get oxygen into their bloodstream they'll work hard 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 to get it and so you know how you feel when you walk on a run on a treadmill or work out if you can imagine keeping up that pace with your heart and your respirations for 24 hours wow (laughs) it would eventually wear you out and so when you look at these people their oxygen level gradually starts to fall and they look terrible and that's when the decision's made to put someone on the ventilator so you know, if someone has a ruptured aortic aneurysm in, in their belly, their chance of survival is super low and you take them to surgery and they almost all die, but not because the surgery killed them. It's just, they just die. So that yeah, that's sure. the first thing. And then um, one, of, one of the things my colleagues have reported, which is strange, is normally if you came in and uh, the oxygen saturation, when they measured with a little white clip on your finger, when you're in the ER or elsewhere, that measures the amount of oxygen in your bloodstream that's bound to hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is what's in your red blood cells that carries oxygen and delivers it to your tissues. So your brain and your kidneys and your liver and your heart live and your muscles live. (coughs) So normally, um, if you put that oxygen on someone's finger, the value should be above 93% or so. Once you get the oxygen saturation down into the high 80s, people start looking bad. They look like they're working to breathe. They're panting. They get sweaty. They have a, an idea of distress. It's almost as if you were feeling like you couldn't get enough air or you were drowning. So people don't look well. In this disease, uh, once again, this emergency medicine listserv, physicians all over the country, my own colleagues have reported, these patients are coming in and their oxygen saturation will be 60s or 70s, and they're just kind of sitting wow. and looking at you. They may be coughing, but they're just kind of looking at you, not looking like they need to be on a ventilator. Normally, when you see someone that low, they're just instantly intubated. And we're not seeing it with these patients. So I looked at that and discussed it with my wife, and we both came to this conclusion. It's very similar to if you have an abnormal type of hemoglobin. So carbon monoxide poisoning is one good example, where um, if you are exposed to high level of carbon monoxide, either house fire or if you try and harm yourself in the car with the, the car running in the garage, that carbon monoxide binds to hemoglobin 
and displaces oxygen. So when people come in, they will have a low oxygen value, but their, um, you know, but their pulse ox may, you know, may look okay. It's sort of the opposite of what we're seeing. But the idea is you get this abnormal hemoglobin that can't carry oxygen. Another time that we see this is when people have something called meth hemoglobinemia. So rather than having oxyhemoglobin, that hemoglobin with oxygen that goes to your tissues, people sometimes can get meth hemoglobin. It blocks that spot. The oxygen can't bind. And what you'll see with these people is really interesting. They'll come in. They don't look like they're in distress. You put an oxygen probe on their finger and the reading is 70% and they don't look like they're in distress. But when you do a blood gas, um, you know, take oxygen out of their wrist, it's kind of painful. But when you look at that, the amount of oxygen in their blood's fine. So it's not a lung issue, but it's an abnormal hemoglobin issue. So I started looking at the reports I was getting from my colleagues and we discussed this and sort of came up with this idea. Could this be methemoglobinemia? So there's a way to measure that on a blood gas <clears throat> test. To my knowledge, that's not been done. I haven't found any literature. I've asked some colleagues. They have not done it. But that's the thought is could this abnormal um, hemoglobin be displacing oxygen and, and accounting for what's going on? So that's the first part. Um, of the argument is that the oxygen saturation on their finger doesn't look right compared to the blood oxygen, and they don't look quite like they have an oxygen of 60%. So that's the first right. part. And then uh, we can talk about the article that came out about beta unit of hemoglobin that has gone viral. Um, sure. And does that um, displace iron as well? And does that contribute to some of the pathology, like the excess uh ions of iron, if that makes sense, causing free radical damage? Right. So what happened when, when you have methemoglobinemia, what happens is uh, the iron actually gets, loses its, its oxygen, gets displaced, <clears throat> and then acts as a free, a free uh, radical, what we call it, or a free piece of iron. And then iron, when it combines with certain uh, oxidative compounds, peroxide, peroxynitrate, things that are not good for you in your body, um, will form this very corrosive compound. And so an article came out uh, very similar to sort of along the lines of what I'm talking about that basically said these physicians in China did this very highly technical study, and they believe that based on their results, that the coronavirus attacks hemoglobin, releases iron, and the iron release in your lungs is actually what damages the tissue. So it's not a, a right. viral, the viral infection itself. It's this free iron. The only issue I have with it, and I read the study, is first of all, it's too technical for me to understand. I've been reading articles a long time. <laughs> uh, I read it four or five times through. I tried to go to their sources and figure out how they were doing it. And it has something to do with molecular docking and a computer model and open reading frames. That's about the best I can tell you about it. So could that be true that it attacks the beta hemoglobin subunit? Could. Secondly, their second thing they made sort of a leap on is could those iron free iron molecules then cause some kind of oxidative damage? Could be true. They, their evidence of that is that a blood test called ferritin in patients with COVID that are dying is very high. The issue is if you get in a car accident 30 minutes from now, if I check your ferritin, your ferritin will be very high. It's what's called an acute phase reactant. So mm. anytime you have inflammation, fever, infection, your ferritin will rise. So they made sort of this leap 
and mention this, there wasn't a whole lot of additional uh, information that they cited. They kind of said, once the the iron gets loose, then it's what causes all this damage. So people obviously have jumped on that and said, oh, see, it's iron and it's not ARDS and whatever. And so it's created this great, this great controversy. So there's definitely oxidation going on. And there's a way that to deal with that is obviously, you know, iron and free radical um, scavengers like glutathione yeah. and vitamin C and things like that. So that's kind of where that theory came from. <clears throat> okay. All right. That might be a good segue. We'll come back to, I'm curious to know about like glutathione and vitamin C shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, leading into to management. So <clears throat> it's interesting before all this COVID-19 I was uh, reading how online and some of the key opinion leaders say in functional medicine often were attacking um, epidemiological studies because they're hard to to gain data from or you know a signal from the noise and <laughs> the randomised clinical trial understandably is the gold standard but unfortunately we don't have the luxury at the moment mm-hmm. of RCTs so this is where we do have to rely on things like epidemiological and mm-hmm. and mechanistic data in vitro animal models. So we have to sort of build up or infer how um, therapies may work. So I think I believe you got some views on, you know, how we can maybe overcome the obstacles of not having the RCTs mm-hmm. currently um, to help navigate our therapies. What's your sort of view how to move forward here from for a therapeutic standpoint? Mm-hmm. So that's what you said, I think, is one of the best explanations I've ever heard for when you're in an emergency situation. Um, why you don't have time to wait for randomized clinical trials. So when patients are dying, when patients are that sick and it's happening quickly, it's overwhelming resources, you have no choice. So you have to do what physicians have done for centuries, which is, all right, I'm faced with this unique clinical problem. What do I know about other things that look like this? And so, you know, the SARS virus that occurred in 2002 and 2003 has about 80, 89, 85 to 89% genetic match to the current SARS virus. So, hey, let's start there. Um, so that, you know, when you look at it, yes, you look epidemiologically and you see who's doing worse. Seems patients with, with comorbidities are doing worse. Diabetics are doing worse. People, as we know, over 80 are doing worse. People that are obese are doing worse. So that's your epidemiological slice. Obviously, what the phrase you used, signal versus noise, that's a great way to put that because it's true. You get all this information and you wonder what's real, what's not, what do you do with the information? So, so yes, so when you don't have randomized clinical trials, what you have to do is you have to look at what you know about a disease, look at what you know about the virus, look at what you know about therapeutics, and you're going to go first to things that look mechanistically like they could work and first to things that also are safe. So you want to find the safest thing that mechanistically will solve your problem. And that's where you have to start. So, um, you know, the, um, the the things that started, obviously that we first all heard about, we heard about hydroxychloroquine, which is a malaria medication, chloroquine and azithromycin, which at least here in the United States, called a ZPAC. People might know it's used to treat bronchitis and et cetera, another antibiotic. Um, and people first heard about that. The first studies we saw in that were from China. There was a study out of France that people started quoting, the government officials here that started quoting, and I'm not political, so I'm not going <laughs> to comment on that, but <laughs> people quoted about it. And then, of course, it went wild, and people were like, people are dying, we need that drug. And what happened was the people that are on hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus 
are now having trouble finding it. So it's sort of like it's what you have this, you know, economy of scarcity. So those were the first thing. But if you look at those studies on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, the initial studies from China, they also had the people on remdesivir, Kaletra, all of these antivirals. They were using a Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, which is not wrong. I'm just saying they were using so many variables. I think you would have a hard time figuring out unless those variables were exactly the same in two groups. How do you know if you have a treatment benefit? The other thing they were doing is they were a bit afraid to do control group because the control group doesn't yeah. get it. So if you have deathly ill patients and you're wondering if you should use it, and it's probably not all that harmful, maybe you should just use it and see what happens compared to before you started using it. That's your control group. Before we started using it, you know, patients died at this percentage. After we started using it, seems less, or they're on the ventilator less. So that's how these studies initially came out. But you're right, a randomized controlled clinical trial where you have two groups, no one knows what either group's getting. The groups are matched by how sick they are and what age they are and whether they have other illnesses. Then you're going to test one individual thing or one treatment protocol. You're going to try and determine which is best. But in this instance, we don't have a lot of chance to do that. So it doesn't mean we throw the farm at people and make them worse. First, do no harm, we say, as a physician. But so that's my general commentary on what you said about evidence-based medicine and trials. And I think that's a fantastic way to say it because you are right on the money. Thank you. All right. So one area that really piqued my interest, um, you had a discussion with Ari Witten, who we had in the podcast mm -hmm. six or so months ago, on a quite a seemingly novel um, drug and the combination of phyto, photobiomodulation, which I also recently had a podcast on, uh, mm -hmm. this um, drug, an old drug, methylene blue. Can you describe that and what it does? Sure. So methylene blue is um, has been around since the 1800s. It was the very first malaria medicine used in the 1920s, and that should should pique someone's interest because hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are malaria medicines. Um, and they are actually derived from methylene blue. So it's, it's, we've had a long history of using methylene blue for various things. It fell out of favor after a period of time, mainly because people didn't like the fact that the whites of their eyes, the sclera turned blue. It was reversible, and it made you also have blue urine and blue bowel movements, and people was, were distressed by that. So they stopped using it and started with some of these other things that didn't have those side effects. What's fascinating about methylene blue is when we described that process earlier of meth hemoglobinemia, where you get this abnormal hemoglobin uh, that can't carry oxygen, there are certain drugs that give people meth hemoglobinemia. One of them is azo, at least that's what it's called in the United States. Peridium is the probably generic name. People take that for a urine infection. It's an anti-spasm medicine. Usually women will use that. Um, stops bladder spasms. And if you take too much of that, the box will usually say, don't take for more than three days. If you take that for a prolonged period of time, it can cause methemoglobinemia. Other things that can are local anesthetics. So people give their child um, a, something for teething that's got benzocaine in it or a local anesthetic, and it can cause methemoglobinemia if you use enough of it. Um, and so when people come into the ER with that, and I've treated that twice in 27 years, not terribly common, the treatment that we do is we give people IV or, I'm sorry, IV methylene blue. And within 20 minutes, it upregulates an enzyme that pulls the methemoglobin off the off of the um, hemoglobin and allows the person to oxygenate. So you'll see the person come in; they look kind of blue, but don't look like they're in distress. Their oxygen saturation's low on their pulse ox on their finger, but when you give them this methylene blue, they they immediately pink up. <laughs> 
their pulse ox goes up. And sometimes you can even discharge them the same day. Older folks with comorbid conditions, we have to hospitalize to watch them closely. Because if I give you a meth hemoglobin level of 50%, I've basically made you anemic. I've dropped the amount of blood that can carry oxygen by half, just as if I you were in trauma and you bled down half of your blood volume. So that's why it's dangerous for people to have a heart condition or whatever. So methylene blue, like I said, that's what we've used it for for years in, uh, in the ER and in critical care. There are also some articles saying that you can use methylene blue for refractory shock and people with COVID that are dying are dying of sepsis. They're dying of septic shock with low blood pressure. Um, their body um, dilates their blood vessels. You can't keep their blood pressure up. And just in the last few years, there have been multiple studies on methylene blue in septic shock. In fact, there was one called the drug you've never heard of that may save your patient. It was like by a critical <laughs> care fellow a few years ago. So methylene blue, I started looking that, at that and my wife and I put together this protocol and thought, hey, what if you gave methylene blue and it improved oxygenation, kept the people's blood pressure up? What else does methylene blue do? Well, it's an anti-malarial. It gets into the lysosome, which is where the COVID likes to hang out inside your cells. And it raises the pH of the lysosome. So it makes it more alkaline. The virus then can't replicate. And we know that. And so studies were done with this current virus in vitro in the blood supply. And they found that by administering methylene blue to a unit of blood and then putting it under a certain wavelength of light, it would kill the coronavirus, the current coronavirus we're dealing with, and not injure the normal cells in the blood. You could then use that blood for a blood transfusion. Theoretically, I don't know that anyone's using that yet, but it was a fascinating in vitro study. Wow, this methylene blue chemical when exposed to light, you mentioned photobiomodulation. The original articles of methylene blue in the 1920s talked about giving people methylene blue and then sitting them outside in the sun. Daylight uh, has a wavelength that's very similar to the wavelength you need to activate methylene blue. And so we don't quite have all the answers on how that works. And people have talked, I know Ari Witten is a specialist in red light therapy, and people have talked about using different frequencies but to make things easy, you could even use daylight bulbs, um, you know, expose a patient to daylight bulb or just give the methylene blue. I've never done that in the ER. I've just given the methylene blue IV. So it's a fascinating thought and a fascinating idea that uh, we have put together a treatment protocol for inpatient use only. And we're now trying to speak to academic institutions about possibly doing this. It does some of the same things that hydroxychloroquine does, but doesn't have the retinal side effects and some of the other side effects. You can't give it if people are pregnant. It's a category X, which means it can definitely will cause birth defects. And you also have to be careful if people have kidney issues or if they have something called G6PD, which is an inherited disorder of, uh, of hemoglobin that some people have. Wow. Fascinating. Look forward to yeah hearing more about this and hopefully there'll be some more published research. All right. Uh, I might move on to... Um maybe exploring partially your, your protocol, certainly mm -hmm. moving on to looking at natural ingredients. And again, mm -hmm. obviously there hasn't been any direct research mm -hmm. on COVID-19, um, but we can maybe yeah, infer from other or from mechanistic studies and also other infections. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, I wanted to just cover off, broadly speaking, there's concern and controversy. And I think maybe it's the language and again, maybe it's mm -hmm. the sort of the extremists who boast that if you just take this supplement, then you've got you know immunity from COVID nineteen. Mm -hmm. But there's this controversy around 
supporting or maybe a, a poorer phrase is boosting the immune system mm-hmm. and maybe uh, confusing that with the cytokine storm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, what's your thoughts here on, you know, the, the cytokine storm versus maybe augmenting a, a, a normal immune response using natural therapies? Right. So I always, you know, I always kind of preface this uh, with, you know, before people take a supplement or a medication or even something over the counter, they should check with their doctor before they do that. And even if you're going to exercise. Yeah, absolutely. So I always tell people that initially. And um, ultimately, most things that people are talking about have not at all been studied with the coronavirus we're dealing with. And you never quite know how things are going to go. The human body is incredibly complex. And there are a lot of things that can happen. So no one can really say definitively one way or another. So you mentioned cytokine storms. So cytokines are inflammatory chemicals in your body, and they actually age you because if you are infected, uh, your body will make a big inflammatory reaction. So if you get cut and get infected, your hand will swell up and your body increases inflammation, increases inflammation, actually attracts white blood cells to eat the bacteria or dirt. Um, it improves blood supply. That's why you, you, swell your body makes gives you pain so that you keep the injured part rested so it can heal so all those things are helpful but if you are experiencing either sepsis from a bacterial infection or rarely from a fungal infection or covid 19 what ultimately happens is people what we're seeing is this two hump thing so we're seeing an initial stage when people are dying purely of respiratory problems but we started to see predictably where people would be in the hospital, have respiratory issues, sometimes get intubated, then get better, and in the second week of illness, suddenly go downhill and die. Either be found dead in their hospital bed or have this sudden you know, drop in blood pressure. They look terrible. Everything's going wrong. You can't get there in enough time to really make a difference, and they die. And what they ultimately measured was those people had really high levels of these cytokine chemicals. One of them is IL-6. So IL-6. So they've gone on to, to say... You know, this is a, this over your body's killing you at this point, trying to protect you, the cytokine storm. So um, there are a lot of things that we use in functional medicine that help with cytokines, reduce cytokines, reduce tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF alpha. Um, what's really interesting is that methylene blue, uh, as well as hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin all decrease inflammatory cytokines. So that may be a hint as to why they have a role Um in this, um, in this disease. So, and they're of course looking at, uh, autoimmune drugs like IL-6 inhibitors, monoclonal antibodies to attack the IL-6 and reduce it so that your body doesn't inadvertently kill you. So that's what they, so one of the first things that popped up on social media was elderberry. So this, these posts came out and said, if you give your patients with COVID-19 elderberry, everything will shut down and they'll die. (laughs) Well, you know, when people look for evidence of that, and if you look for very esteemed colleagues like Stephen Buhner, herbalists and things, they kind of said, that's not really true. We don't know that that's true. Yes, the elderberry can increase. We know there's been studies showing that it increases inflammatory cytokines, but you know, that's kind of good at times. So if you have an illness, your inflammatory cytokine sometimes will help you. But people then have said, you know, Don't take it if you have autoimmunity because it'll make your autoimmunity worse. And if you have SARS, it'll make that worse. And the bottom line is we really don't know. You know, I've told people like, you know, we're not even sure elderberry can help with this. In fact, there's not really good controlled studies for a lot of things that it can help with. There's some, but so I've told people, I don't think it's a never. I don't think it's you always should. 
it's that kind of thing. But that's one of the questions that came up. And people now um, are concentrating a lot on the cytokine storm and actually making claims, which are sort of dangerous, saying things like, I put together a supplement package for you and it can, it can stop your cytokine storm. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're having a cytokine storm, you shouldn't be home taking supplements. <laughs> got a really high mortality rate. And one of the things I've told my patients is, no, I don't want you to go to the hospital if you don't have to. You're more likely if you don't have it to catch it at the hospital. But like, if you have to go to the hospital, go to the hospital. People are staying home and there are definitely people staying home and dying. And, and the current you know, response here in, in the United States is if you're, you know, if you've had COVID-like symptoms and they're called to your home and you're in cardiac arrest, they just pronounce you dead. There's not an attempt made to save you because that puts everyone at risk. So yeah, people have talked quite a bit about supplements and <clears throat> cytokine storm. I think there are definitely uh, supplements, some of them that we had talked about in our literature review that can help with with at least with reducing inflammatory cytokines. And there's never been any evidence that I can find that everybody, anybody studied these things in cytok true cytokine storm. Yeah, sure. All right, so taking a step back then, um, I presume some of your patients are more concerned. I think there's uh, like obviously timing and context, like preventing the mm -hmm. um, infection itself. Do you have any broad suggestions? Obviously, mm -hmm. we doing social distancing and um, mm -hmm. washing hands, et cetera. But when it comes to above and beyond the sort of, um, you know, the, the general recommendations, does natural medicines mm -hmm. play a, a role there? And if so, what, what things do you spring to mind for you? Right. So our uh, general approach, and we've sort of developed in our office a, a system we call the fully functional system to help people become their healthiest, happiest, most joyful self. And that's how we, the lens with which we treat almost all problems or all problems likely of people that are coming in. And so basically the first step is identifying what's going on. So figuring out whether someone's coming in for autoimmunity or they have issues from mold exposure or, you know, Lyme disease, whatever it is, the first thing you have to do. And so that can involve testing and things. So sometimes that will involve testing. Then the next thing you're going to do is you're going to, those things that you identify that may be adversely impacting your health. And that could be diet, that could be stress, could be anything. We try and reduce those things. So the majority of times, that I'm talking to people, I'm talking about reducing things that are adversely impacting their health. So we know people are more prone to having an abnormal immune system if they're under stress. People get sick when they're stressed. We've all heard this story likely of uh, a married couple that's been married for 80 years and the husband dies and two weeks later the wife dies, right? So that's a, an issue, broken heart syndrome they call it, um, where people will die. So reducing stress, I will talk to patients about that. Talk to them about reducing foods and you know, you. This is the part where the conventional physicians will kind of snicker at you um, at foods. But, you know, there are about 10 articles showing that gluten, for example, is affects the immune system and, and the neurologic system adversely. We don't know why. Mm. There's theories, you know, gluteomorphins and all these things and inflammatory compounds. So I talk to people about their diet. You know, when I look at folks that don't subscribe to functional medicine, um, you know, we're hearing a lot of cases, at least in the United States, where people will say, this person was a completely healthy 40-year-old person. And, I, and I, there have been a lot of young people here in the United States, not a lot, but a significant amount of re medical residents who are in their, you know, barely 30 years old who have died. Um, and so I can't look at all of them and say they must all have a crappy diet, although I did when I was a resident. <laughs> so 
But, you know, I concentrate on a lot on helping people get out of a high risk group. So get your blood sugar under control, get your, get the weight off, you know, exercise, all those things we know that boost immunity or help immunity, or at least increase, you know, increase healthy inflammation while they decrease unhealthy inflammation. And so there are some other things that we had worked into our protocol. IV vitamin C is one of them. And beyond its immune effect, and vitamin C has been studied, IV vitamin C high dose has been studied in everything from cancer to immunity. It's a direct viral uh, killer. So it's been found to kill hepatitis. And there's at least one article on Ebola virus. Um, there are several different articles. And then, of course, there are articles on, on vitamin C and influenza and other things like that. So there's not really been um, great studies with the or any studies I know of with the current virus. But you know, as long as you don't have a contraindication, IV vitamin C is part of our protocol. Um, but there are people that take oral vitamin C for sure, and that does have immune helping effects. Um, other things we had talked about, and vitamin C is very, very, very powerful um, uh, oxidative stress or antioxidants. So the, these people that are dying of the coronavirus are dying from two things, inflammation and oxidative stress. So if you can tame the immune system, take care of those things, however you do it, then you stand a good chance of doing better with the, with any disease or, in, or cancer or anything else. So those are the big things that we look at. So vitamin C has a lot of antiviral activity and um, there's just a ton of information. And I have a link I can give you if any listeners are interested in, in looking at our literature review for really all of the literature. But um, glutathione, as we know, in the body's most powerful antioxidant, that is also um, really helpful for the immune system, decreases inflammatory cytokines. Methylene blue, interestingly, increases intracellular glutathione. So um, zinc. So uh, hydroxychloroquine is a zinc ionophore, meaning we know zinc has antiviral activity, directly inhibits viruses. Hydroxychloroquine drags zinc into the cells with it. It's what an ionophore does. And so that combination together, so a lot of people have talked about sort of anecdotally adding zinc. And you know, zinc, oral vitamin C, even most of the time glutathione, relatively low risk interventions, unless you have a specific contraindication, those are relatively low risk. There's also been work done on with multiple virus, viral infections with melatonin. Melatonin is probably the dark horse or the unsung hero that may make a significant difference here. Um, so those are the big things. And then optimizing a vitamin D level. Vitamin D has got a tremendously bad reputation in America. Uh, I won't say bad at imitation, but right. it's, yeah. it's um, looked down upon or people are told it doesn't do anything, usually because people are using doses that are not appropriate and they're not checking blood levels and everybody uh, responds differently to, to vitamin D. So those are some of the yeah. uh, outline of our um, of our literature review, our protocol, we are only releasing, and it's an inpatient only protocol releasing to academic institutions, hopefully to get, um, clinical trials started so there can be something, but if people choose right. to use it as inpatient, you know, without a trial, that's their, their choice. Right. Right. Great. Thank you. Um, just quickly, vitamin D, I'll try and do the conversion. What sort of blood levels do you think it's optimal? And I, yeah, I agree. I think the, the, often the studies are the dose are too low and, um, therefore people claim it doesn't work. So what sort of blood levels are you aiming for? Uh, right. So, um, and that's another controversial area is what's a normal blood level, uh, <laughs> and how much is too much. So 
we uh, deal here with nanograms per deciliter. So I'm I'm not sure if you use international units in Australia. Yeah, we use that. Uh, yeah, so right. So yeah, if you 2. took 5. right two point five times the level, I would be giving you nanograms per per yeah. milliliter. Yeah. So typically, we would say a normal level is probably, or a, I should say, optimal level, because normal here by the lab is thirty nanograms per deciliter. So uh, you know, thirty. 60, 75, that'd be 75, uh, you know, international units for you. But um, that's what most people are told is normal. But the reality is the immune and the anti-cancer activities and the ability to modulate autoimmune disease really doesn't occur till you're upwards of 40, probably closer to 60. So most of the time we'll tell people somewhere between 50 and 80. And in reality, vitamin D toxicity, unless you're taking supplemental calcium with it, Vitamin D toxicity alone doesn't occur till you're at a level of about 200 nanograms per, wow. per ml. So, and I always tell people vitamin D is not something to take lightly. People with granulomatous disease like sarcoid and certain things can get toxic much more quickly than other folks. So that's one that I always tell people to get take vitamin D. You need a level and you need someone that's going to watch it um, because we have our some patients that take a thousand IUs that have a level of 60 and we have other patients that require 12,000 IUs a day. So it's really dependent. Yeah, great. So yeah, I think that equates to around about 100 to 150 um, millimoles per liter, which is often Mm -hmm. what functional medicine practitioners in Australia recommend for Mm -hmm. optimal levels. Mm -hmm. Um, One final one, I'm not sure if you've looked into it much. Mm -hmm. Quercetin seems to be getting a lot of um, attention discussion and hints at it in literature as maybe a um, like a protease inhibitor for the virus and also mm-hmm. an ionophore for zinc. Do you, do you have any an interest and knowledge on, on quercetin? Yeah, so we've, we 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 say quercetin, but that's okay. Quercetin, sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a made-up potato. fine with me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so quercetin we use in our practice quite a bit. We see a lot of patients with mold illness that end up having mast cell activation, and so it's a very good antihistamine agent. It's really good for the for um, the GI tract as well. Heals helps heal increased intestinal permeability, but there's also yes some information people have talked about um, it being a protease inhibitor. And it seems to me like the more I read about quercetin, the more I like quercetin. One of our thoughts as we were putting our protocol together for inpatient use in the hospital is you know, because we had talked about ostragalus and, you know, hyperbaric oxygen, all of these things are options. But at the same point in functional medicine, when you're having an interface with allopathic medicine and you're trying to help, you know, you want to make sure that people don't skim the paper, see something like ostragalus mm-hmm. or quercetin and think, oh, this is crazy and throw it, ball it up and throw it in the trash. <laughs> so we've all thought about doing a follow-up paper basing, seeing how the clinical studies go with these things. And if this, and it was meant really this protocol, we talk about quite a bit about the mechanism of action of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and what the evidence says. We didn't really go into antivirals, but the thought is our protocol would be an adjunct, inpatient adjunct to what people are already doing. So whether they choose to do you know, do clinical studies and do hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin, whatever, remdesivir, whatever, just add this in. And my thought is, okay, then we get some traction there. Then when you have the respect of the community, then say, oh, and by the way, what do you think about quercetin or astragalus or hyperbaric oxygen therapy? All those things, there is some evidence for, and you know, you're not going to hurt anybody likely giving them quercetin. 
Um, mm. You know, hyperbaric oxygen, a little bit different story depending on how it's done. So, but I'll tell you, there's a lot less hyperbaric chambers than there are ventilators. So that would also pose an ethical dilemma of who you dove and, and got into right. the chamber. And so, but the other thing we're worried about, not worried about, concerned about thinking about is, you know, there are diseases like respiratory syncytial virus that children get, they wheeze for years after that. Anytime they get sick with the minor, you know, the most minor um, respiratory infection, they wheeze. Just there's some damage, inflammatory stuff done to the lungs. So I look at this, the two groups of people I'm concerned about are people that have had the disease and been, been intubated. Will they have an ongoing, you know, issue with susceptibility? And I think in functional medicine, we could step in here and minister to these people and, and treat them and say, let's do what we can to limit it, you know, inflammation and help your immune system be strong and remove obvious other source of inflammation and help them. The other group that I have a strong heart for, and it's a bit bittersweet. You talked about it initially a bit is, you know, I, I'm not in the ER practicing right now. I feel brotherhood with people that are still there. They're my people. They, I sometimes think about going there. My daughter's immunocompromised. I really don't have that that luxury, mm. uh, or ability, but, and I've taken them, I've actually taken the group supplements, <laughs> immune support <laughs> to take and zinc and vitamin C and said, Hey, you guys, I don't know you, you know, don't get me in trouble for this, but here you might want to think about doing these things at the recommended dosage, but I'm not your doctor. Um, and just put it on the, the table in the ER and walked out. And so, um, but I worry about the PTSD that we're going to see in ER yeah, physicians because there's such yes. powerlessness in the face of this, especially in places like New York, Detroit. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, and just finally on that note, probably the, mm -hmm. the second phase we're wondering about here is more the, yeah, the, the stress, um, whether it's from working on the front mm -hmm. line, the PTSD, but also like the the social, social isolation, mm -hmm. the loneliness. Are you getting any sort of... Um, any hint of that with your patients or is that something that you're concerned about moving forward? You know, it, it is, it's funny as a, as a, you know, traditionally trained physician initially, I was very uh, uncomfortable for the last few years. Uh, my wife and I have been trying to make all of these videos, you know, and we would kind of put on our white coat and be very proper and want to, you know, announce and talk about our education and where we train and what we did and then present patients this very thing. And, Ultimately, what really came out of this, we realized is patients don't want that. They don't. They want to see me in a t-shirt. They want to see me talking. I obviously have to know what I'm talking about and I have to yeah. act like I care, but people don't want that front. So if you look at people that are super successful, that are down to earth, JJ Virgin, you know, all those folks that they strike you as, but God, I like that, like, you know, go out on a double date with her and her husband and, you know, and we know JJ really well and she's a wonderful person. But you see these people and they're personable and you get to go into their kitchen and their world. So we've now been making videos largely for our patients and saying, you know, we're not seeing you physically in the office now. We're seeing you virtually over the Internet. We miss you. And we're, we've been giving doing this series called uh, our Facebook page is fully functional at Vine Healthcare. But we've been doing uh, almost every night a one good thing and trying not to mention the word coronavirus. <laughs> And we've like we talked one night about glutathione, another night about playing music. I'm a musician. So I talked about the power of music. We talked about, you know, keeping up with people socially, all those things. We talked about doing personality tests to figure out the people that you're stuck with, how to get along better. <laughs> so we're trying to keep with our patients. And we just finally let down the veneer and said, this is us. You know, our laundry's a mess. And, you know, we have five kids in our house that are teenagers and it's loud. Sorry, the dog's running around during the video. 
but patients have responded well to that. So we've tried to keep it a family. We always think of our patients that way. So yes, we've been hearing about people that are lonely and stuck at home. We, we, like, we like to change the verbiage of that. You're not stuck at home. You are safe at home because mm. you've made the intelligent decision because words are words have power. So beautiful. Well said. All right. Um, so I just want to thank you for your time. Is there any, where we can, you got any other further re, uh, resources, websites, mm-hmm. links, any, any recommendations? Sure. So you can find us. Our website is www.vinehealthcare, like V I N E healthcare, all one word.com. We are also on Facebook uh, at fully functional at Vine Healthcare. Um, we are also on uh, Instagram at the pandas docs. So, and uh, that is where you will find us and where you'll find our information. So I'd be happy to email you our uh, literature review and you can get it to your followers or yeah, listeners, however sure. you would Absolutely. like, because we'd love to get that spread around. And we are interested, anybody that has any academic connections, have them contact us. My email's on the uh, recommendation. I'm happy to have I can't really answer medical questions, but gosh, if you can put me in touch with some folks to do um, some trials, that would be most awesome. Absolutely. Will do. Well, Scott, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate, I think, yeah, all the, the hats you've worn over the years has really melded together, made this beautiful mosaic to be able to understand literature, um, keep your finger on the pulse from an emergency medicine perspective, but also, um, I think, also objectively use functional medicine and it's got this perfect fit. So congratulations. Well done. Look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.